Anybody coming up Mercer yet know if it's open? Maybe the latecomers come in that way? Still closed? Okay. When you came in this morning, I don't know if you do this on a regular basis. I'm not sure how you come in. Maybe you're rushed. Maybe everything's hectic. Maybe you're just glad to have gotten here. You rush in, find your seat, sit down, and everything's ready to start. Or maybe you come in a little early and look around. But as you came in this morning, are you one of those types of people that has a tendency to look around at who's here, as to how they dress? What about when you walk through the parking lot this morning? Did you happen to notice who drove what? Wow, it must be nice to have that kind of vehicle. What about what you see when you get here? You look around enough to notice either what people have on or what they don't. The context of the message this morning is out of James chapter 2 where obviously the writer is saying there's a lot of times that we walk into a sanctuary or a setting or a service where we do happen to notice the difference of what people wear and sometimes make distinctions about that based on what we think they are or who we think they are based on all of that. I don't know if you've ever been to one of those services where you weren't sure whether it was a service or a fashion show. Have you ever go to a church like that? where you really weren't sure whether it was a service or a fashion show. I'm not sure if you grew up like me watching television, television evangelists take off. I grew up, obviously, in the 50s and 60s and the 70s and 80s. They just took, took off exponentially like Christian music did. I remember watching Jim Baker and Tammy Faye. Oh, you did too? <laughs> and, and you're going, oh, 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 I don't get it. And then you heard a lot of sp- people speaking about or teaching about the prosperity gospel as if God owes us something and if you really do this and if you send your money in or if you plant the right seed, God will take out of it and, and, and it will exceed itself a hundredfold. They'll take that Luke passage and use it to a certain advantage and, and, that, and God wants you to be rich, God wants you to be wealthy and so often we look at some of these guys and we wonder what type of gospel or kind of gospel they're preaching. And sometimes, if we're not careful, we who don't buy that or believe in that may look down on them, and in some contexts, they may, may be as genuine as anybody you've ever met. But sometimes we may hear a story like that or a service like that or watch a setting like that and kind of do a value judgment. We'll watch pastors on TV and sometimes look at the rings they wear or the attire they have on and, and, and make a value judgment based on what it is that we see on the outside. Some of you look at me this morning and say, you're missing the tie. Not most don't, but when I wore a suit and tie on Christmas Eve, you'd have thought I dressed up like no other time on, on the planet. I mean, I had, I had 100 people, at least on Christmas Eve, point out the fact that I had a shirt and a tie on and a jacket. Sometimes no one notices, no one cares. But other times we look at that and we make a determination based on what we see. We're going to be in James. We're going to return to a section of Scripture that we left off a few months ago. So I want you to open your Bibles, your Kindle, your iPad, your smartphone, or your iPhone. Okay, seriously, who would have ever thought we would have made statements like that in church? But there are a lot of people who bring their Kindle or their iPhone or their smartphone or their iPad to church. Maybe you got one for Christmas, and that's where they are. That's where your Bible is. There are some phenomenal apps with those things. that You can do some downloads and write some notes, and that's fine. But I do want you to be in the Word, so no matter what you bring or how you get it here, I want you to be in James. Last fall, we left off in James chapter 1. He is probably one of my favorite authors, one of my favorite books, and so often when a pastor picks a section of Scripture to 
to talk about or spend some time in it has a lot to do with who he likes or what he likes about a certain section of Scripture or how it will teach. James is pretty straight, very honest. He gets to the point. Paul will have some powerful run-on sentences. James just gets to the point. He's a straight talker. He doesn't beat around the bush. We left off at the end of November at James chapter 1 where he used the analogy of looking in a mirror. And if you remember that setting, we had a number of mirrors on the stage here and we talked about what we see or what we look at or how we see ourselves when we look in that mirror. And every single one of us in the morning when we wake up, use that analogy or probably have had that analogy in our mind for a week or so after that message because we do make adjustments based on what we see. And so your hair is all straightened out, your clothes are appropriate for what you're going to wear on Sunday morning, and we do all of those things based on what we see. And James takes that same analogy that's 2,000 years old and helps us understand how it applies to how we see ourselves through the mirror of the Word of God. Now what James wants to make sure is when I look into the Word of God and I utilize it as a mirror, I want to make sure that I see God clearly. Sometimes we have a lot of distorted images of God based on a certain piece of Scripture that we don't understand. We don't know why God did this here and didn't do that here. I've had people say, well, the God of the Old Testament is pretty hard. The God of the New Testament is pretty tender. It's the same God. God says, I haven't changed yesterday, today, forever. I'm the same. So one of the reasons we tell you to be in the Word of God on a regular basis and make sure you read all the Word of God is you get a clear picture so that you understand fully who God is. Not just a certain section that I don't understand but the full scope of Scripture so that I get a real good picture of God all the way from Genesis to Revelation. Mark Twain said, It's not the pieces of Scripture I don't understand that give me problems. It's the ones that I do understand that scare me to death. Paul or James not only wants us to have a clear understanding of God so that we look in the mirror, the Word of God, and make a full understanding of who God is based on all that we see, he really wants us to understand ourselves. He said, I want you to get a really good, clear picture of who you are in Christ. Not only who you are in Christ, I want you to get a real clear picture of who you ought to be in Christ. So now that you're a new creature in Christ, I want to make sure that you're wearing the right attire. And it's not the physical attire. He said, I want you to take off some of the things that you know now that you're a follower of Christ are inappropriate. Paul gives us some of those in Colossians when he said, you know what, now that you're a follower of Christ, now that you're a believer in Jesus, and you look in the mirror of the Word of God, and you know now what a believer in Christ ought to look like, he said, I want you to take off that anger if it's there. I want you to take off wrath. I want you to make sure you take off blasphemy. I also want you to make sure you take off filthy communication. So we look at blasphemy and say, well, absolutely, now that I'm a believer in Christ, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be blasphemous. Blasphemous. He also says, take out filthy communication out of your mouth. Don't lie to one another. You put off the old self and all his deeds, I want you to put on the new man. That new man, Paul describes in Colossians chapter 3, is clothed and looks like this. You now clothe yourself. You took off that other stuff. Now that you're a follower of Christ, you know what you ought not to be. This is what you ought to put on. Put on compassion. Put on kindness. Put on humility, gentleness. Put patience on. Take that impatient nature off and put patience on. I want you to bear with one another. I really want you to put on forgiveness. Don't hold grudges. Take that off. Don't make people pay constantly for things they've done 25, 35, 40 years ago. Take that off and put on compassion. Put on forgiveness. 
put on grace. Forgive one another if you have any grievance against someone. Forgive as God's forgiven you. And over all of these virtues, put on love. It kind of ties them all in together, Paul says. The mere the word of God has the power to confront us and to say, you know what, that's inappropriate. You're a follower of the word of God. Now, a lot of Christians will tell you what's appropriate and what isn't. That's one of the reasons I say go to the word of God. And I look into the word of God, I see what is, and I know what I am and what I need to be. And the word of God has the power to confront me. You know what? That's inappropriate. It has the power to correct us. Now you, you ought to make some changes. And it also has the power to call us to repentance. To call us to the point of recognizing, you know, there are some behaviors or attitudes, clothing, if you will, that I, that I have on that I ought not to have on. And I, I really need to ask you to forgive me, God. Because I've had on some attitudes that are inappropriate and some things that I ought not to be wearing as a follower of Christ. So how do I need to know, or how do I know when I need to change clothes? Or how do I know when I need to change those attitudes and behavior? Well, you look in the mirror. James chapter 2. You there? Beginning at verse 1. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and you say to him, here, here's a good seat for you. But then you go to the poor man and say, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom that he promised those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor. It's not the rich who, you are, who are exploiting you. Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbors yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin. And you're convicted by the, by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever sins, keep, or whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not commit murder. If you do not commit murder but do commit or if do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful, because mercy will always triumph over judgment. Every once in a while you go through a week and you know the context of the message, and all of a sudden you see a video or a media script and you say oh my lands who would have ever thought that this particular event would have happened this week knowing what i'm going to talk about this morning how many of you saw the video clip all week long it was on youtube GodTube, and every other place today show of the homeless man in columbus ohio that got elevated all right have you all seen that one watch it for a couple of minutes of all things of all weeks this would have been the one
Now, if you saw that story, you recognize where it went over the next couple of days. He was invited on every national media television show that you could possibly get. He's already been offered a job by the Cleveland Cavaliers and a house. NFL Films want to use him, a number of other opportunities that he's had. Today's show brought his mom that he hadn't seen for 20 years into the context, got a haircut, and uh, just had a lot of other things happen to him. When I saw that, and I knew the context, it ran through my mind a number of things, but a number of the, one of the things that went through my mind is, how many other people passed him and ignored him? How many other people drove by him, maybe even seen the sign, didn't think a thing about it? How many people didn't want to look at him, didn't want to catch his eye, didn't want to read his sign, totally ignored the guy? Now, I don't know where their story is going to go. I don't know what's going to happen or where it's going to be 10 years from now or 5 years from now, but I did wonder how many people drove by that guy without seeing him at all. They saw him, but they really didn't see him. They made a value judgment based on what they see or what they saw, the fact that it was a homeless man that was just simply out there panhandling. Why doesn't he get a job? Why doesn't he turn his life around? What happened to him? And then all of a sudden, one guy sees him, hears him, spends some time with him, and literally changed his life and turned his world upside down, at least for the last week. And then I looked at this section of Scripture, and I realized that James talking about some of the same things. How so often we look at people and make value judgments on people based on what we see on the outside. The root idea behind favoritism in verse 1, as we begin to unpack it, in Hebrew meant lifting up the face. Now, Romans saw poor people with no face. In other words, when they saw someone who was poor, they didn't even look at him, didn't even think that he had a face. So when Paul looks at this term, or James looks at this term and uses it, he says, you know, you're used to doing that of seeing people that are, are different than you, that don't have the same clothes on as you, that maybe dress differently than you, you're looking at them, and you make a value judgment based on what you see or you don't see. Personal favoritism means determining the value of someone solely on the basis of what you see on the outside, on the basis on what you see on the surface of things, specifically face value. Now, you certainly understand how this applies sometimes, how we look at people based on how they dress. We can do it with what they drive. And we can make value determinations. They spend their money too much on this and not enough on that. They ought to be doing this based on what they drive. We do that based on where they live. We do that based on how they look. I went into ministry with long hair. I still get critiqued on it every once in a while. But when I went into ministry 33 years ago, there were older pastors in this particular district who would totally ignore me because I had long hair and drove a motorcycle. And I felt like I was one of them. I didn't think I was doing anything different. I grew up in a culture where my grandparents came from Yugoslavia. They were Croatian. Didn't speak very well English. Or, neither do I. Didn't speak. <laughs> the trait that carries on. But didn't speak English very well. Were very uh, poor. Didn't have a lot. When they found out they were having 13 kids, they decided to leave the mill where he's working in Washington, PA, and buy a dairy farm outside of Washington, PA, and there were people around him that wouldn't sell him any land. To this day, my dad, just this year, went down to one of these areas in hunting season, and a guy threw him off of that farm because of that issue with that hunky who moved into that neighborhood 60 years ago. We can do it to ourselves. We can do it to ourselves based on what we do for a living. Imagine two people having a conversation about what they do. And one will introduce himself as a president of a corporation and 
talk about being on the board of directors or whatever. Maybe you're in a small group, you don't know what anybody does, and you're going around the room and introducing yourselves to one another, and this person will say, this is what I do. You know they then have a white-collar job. And if you're not careful, you'll find yourself saying, whenever they ask you what you do, well, I'm just a mechanic. What's different? No different between what you do and what he does. But so often we'll use that phrase, I'm just a. Imagine two kids having a conversation about the college they attend. And so they're introducing themselves to one another at some event, and one will say about his college, where'd you go to college? Or maybe they're now later out of college, where do you go or where'd you go? And he will say, I went to Harvard or Yale or some Ivy League school. And someone will then say, where did you go? And he said, well, I just went to BC3. I hear that all the time still. When I ask kids where they're going to college, well, I'm just going to BC3. That's a great place. Why is it any different than Grove City or Slippery Rock or any of the other? I, I, I'm just, I just go to... We have people do it to us based on what we wear, based on where we live, based on what we drive. We do it to ourselves sometimes based on impressions of what we think has value or what we don't think has value. Kids do it at school all the time. The, the cool kids over the ordinary kids, the, the athletes over the geeks. But it can go way beyond those things. It can apply to how we elevate one gender over another how in many societies as well as our own sometimes we see male dominance and male supremacy everywhere it was only in the 19th century women women had the right to vote as if they were less of a citizen than a man we do it over gender we do it over age in many obvious contexts we see the the older folks getting ignored and the younger people getting elevated Sometimes we do it the other way around where older people ignore younger people. And we think they have no value because of the way they dress or the things they do or the things they're listening to and all that stuff. And we sometimes devalue them based on just simply age. And we can do it opposite ways. We can certainly live in many societies where those that are older are devalued. And you hear that. Many, I'm sure even in this congregation, sometimes feel the older we get, the less our opinion matters. And I've heard that. And I know sometimes many feel that way. And the opposite sometimes, where those who are younger feel that way. I had this conversation with somebody yesterday and was wondering, you know, 30 years ago I wouldn't have thought about my age. Now I'm wondering how marketable I'll be 5, 10 years from now. Or 30 years from now or ago, I would have never thought of that. But it does have a difference on the value that either we feel about ourselves or the people put on us. It can happen in gender. It can happen with... Age relationships, it can happen with one race over another. spent some time yesterday outside, and it was so cold when I came in, I just wanted to sit down and watch a movie, so I watched an old Western. I'm a Western freak or a, a war freak, and watched an old Western, and interestingly enough, in the context of the Scripture, it was on uh, American Indians and Geronimo, and began to watch that whole context of, of what we in this society 200 years ago did to the American Indians. And one Indian is saying to himself in another language, I don't get how all the one God that we all worship looks at us so differently. And then I look in many other contexts and I see African Americans that have a very difficult time fitting in in many contexts. Even in this community alone, I still hear African Americans referred to as colored people. You know it and I know it. As if they're different. As if we're more superior. But you know and I know we hear it all the time. 30 years from now, societies, or sociologists are predicting that the four main races 
Caucasian, African American, Asian, and, and Hispanic are going to be somewhat equal in the American society around the year 2040 or 2045. It's going to be fascinating to see what's going to happen when white Americans or white Caucasian people aren't the dominant race in our society. In the South, they're still fighting the Civil War. People are looked at based on the color of their skin. I've had a lot of conversations with people, even in our own community, who say, you have no idea how hard it is to be black in Butler. And now you have no idea how hard it is to be Asian in Butler because that population is beginning to increase equally with African Americans. So it's not just based on what we see. It's not based on clothes or rings or any of those kind of things. There's a whole lot of ways that if we're not careful, we can fall into exactly what James is saying, is that you cannot, as a follower of Jesus Christ, do that. A number of reasons why we shouldn't elevate people or value people solely based on what we see on the outside. One reason is you'll get it wrong most of the time. I get the whole first impression thing. And that if you're going to go to a job or a job application, you ought to dress appropriately. I, I understand all that and agree with a lot of that. But if you make determination about someone's value based on appearance or appearance or looks or gender or clothes or age or the color of their skin, it's wrong. James defines the differences here based on attire. And one of the clearest markers in the Roman culture at that time was attire. And what they wore, and that's why he used that particular analogy, one that he knew exactly they could relate to. Because they were used to it all the time. And there wasn't middle class in the Roman culture. It was either very rich or extremely poor. And so when James picked that analogy, he knew there wasn't a soul in that audience that wouldn't understand what he was talking about. But it goes way beyond that. Based on a number of factors from age to the color of the skin. You cannot determine the value of an individual just by looking on the outside. It's wrong. Main reason is in verse 1. Look at it. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. The original translation of verse 1 is our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory. If you read any of the different translations, you'll see they all took that and translated it and used the glory part in a different context. The original context is our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory. The glory of God was seen all the way through the New Testament, when it was, or the Old Testament, and when it was, it always spoke as, of the manifest presence of God. The glory of God was in the tabernacle. That's what they wanted. The glory of God was in the temple. Matter of fact, the glory of God was so in the temple on certain occasions when Isaiah walked in one day just to do church. He found out the glory of God was in that place in amazing ways. He said, the year King Uzziah died, I, I just went to church. I walked in, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, seating on a, sitting on a throne. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim with six wings. Two wings covered their face and two covered their feet and two where they were flying. They were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. All the way through the Old Testament, the manifest presence of God was visible and tangible, and you could almost touch it in certain contexts. At Mount Sinai, there were so many times when Moses said to the people, don't even go and touch that mountain. God is here, and if you touch that mountain, you will die. You ever been in those times or been in those places or those circumstances or situations where you really did feel the glory of God? The presence of God 
times in your worship experience, whether it be in church or at your own context or while you're driving or at home, wherever you have those multiplicity of worship experiences where you knew it beyond theological implications, you knew it beyond my own understanding of theology that the presence of God shows up when I give Him worship, you actually knew it experientially. Where you were in a setting where the glory of God was there. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the visible presence of God. section of scripture that many read over the Christmas experience in John chapter 1. The beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word became flesh. Verse 14 tells us, and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory. That's what He's referring to. When Jesus came and showed up, He said, we have seen His glory. All that had been talked about through the entire Old Testament, when Jesus showed up, we have now seen His glory. The glory of the one and only, and the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. I really believe that James is saying this, you cannot hold on to the presence of God, which you now understand in your life in Christ, and that the glory of God dwells in you when Christ Jesus dwells in you. You cannot hold on to the glory of God in Jesus Christ in your life and your personal prejudice and favoritism at the same time. It doesn't make sense that you hold on to your faith in Christ and still be the kind of person that determines the worth and value of someone based on what you see. You cannot hold on to both. You have to determine, I've got to drop one over the other. But you cannot hold on to the glorious presence of God when Jesus Christ dwells in your life and your personal prejudice at the same time. You cannot hold on to both. Prejudice is totally inconsistent with the gospel we preach. It is inconsistent with the reason Jesus came. It is inconsistent with the reason Jesus died. One of the most powerful verses in the entire Old Testament is in 1 Samuel 16, when God said to Samuel the prophet, when he was parading all the sons of Jesse in front of him, determining which one would be the next king, he said, I'm telling you, you're looking on the outside. Man looks that way. God looks on the heart. You cannot make your value judgments based on what you see in the outside. Now to do that, to do it from God's vantage point, many times we do need a new set of eyes. And when I said the word of God has the power to convict or confront or to challenge me, one of the things that it may need to have me do this morning is say, God, will you give me a new set of eyes because I do do this. I look at people, I look at the way they dress, I look at the color of their skin, I look at their background, I look at the clothes they wear, cars they drive, the houses they live in, and and I'll be honest with you, God, I make value judgments. And and I'd love a new set of eyes. I'd love to be able to look at people like you do. You may need more than a new set of eyes, you may need a whole new heart. God is no respecter of persons. All the way through the Old and New Testament, especially in the New, he said, whosoever will may come. Matthew chapter 22, Jesus and God sends out an invitation to the banquet table of the king. He said, I don't want anyone to perish. I want to invite everybody to this banquet table. I know some are going to reject it and many won't come. But I'm telling you, when I send out my invitation to everyone at this banquet table, I want everyone to come. When I send out my invitation to the banquet table of the king in the future day in Revelation, I want all to come. I want the king, I want the pauper. I want the rich, I want the poor. I want the Asian, I want the African. I want the male, I want the female. James would say, how can you possibly call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ and still at the same time determine the value of someone based solely on what you see? 
Now, just in case you would take that lightly, James already anticipates that, that they would look at James and say, now, whoa, whoa, wait, wait a minute. You know, it's not like we committed adultery here. It's not like we murdered anyone here. We're just making value judgments based on that one looks like he's a little shabby and the other one has some fine stuff on. And just in case anyone would start to think that way, that it's not as bad as someone else, look at verse 9. If you show favoritism, you sin. Just like any other sin. And you're convicted by the same law as lawbreakers. You say, well, we didn't commit adultery, we didn't commit murder. James said, I'm telling you, you break one, you break them all. And I'm telling you, favoritism and this kind of value judgment is just as sinful as adultery and murder. If you're going to call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to understand the seriousness of this issue. So James expounds on it as well as he knows how. The glory of God is diminished. When people who call themselves followers of Christ look down on people basically because of what they see on the outside. If we treat people especially because they're rich and look down on someone because they're poor, we're going to have a hard time being a full reflection of the God of Scripture. You can look at a rich person. It's not just a slam on a rich. You can look at a rich person and think they're okay because of what you see and totally overlook the fact that that person may be really hurting inside which is no different than thinking a poor person has all kinds of problems because he's poor when he may be one of the most pleasant and content people on the planet. If we're not careful, the attitude that James is concerned about spills over in how we do everything for show and how we do everything for look. And soon all that matters is how we look at things on the outside. We never really deal with the stuff on the inside and all we do is parade our piety instead of being honest about who we are. And what goes on in the inside. You understand what it's like sometimes dealing with it within the context of a rich man, poor man vantage point. Many see it and understand it from a vantage point of a black-white issue or an issue of ethnicity. Sometimes we do it with those in jail, unwilling to give them a second chance, unwilling to give them an opportunity to find out that there are things better than the choices they've made and Christ is the only answer they'll find. I had a conversation with Maria Marburger in our church. She's going to the jail every week and having an opportunity. And you'll see a note about that in the bulletin next week where she just simply loves to share how God has changed her life with people that most others would have given up on. I can do it sometimes with the kid whose pants are halfway down and the hat's on backwards. And I want to say, pull your pants up and straighten your hat out. When he may be one of the greatest kids on the planet. Or he may be so lost, and if he is, he is someone that God so loved that he sent his one and only son to die on a cross for that kid's soul. And I ignored him just because of the way he looked or the way he dressed. Determining the value of someone based on what you see totally will diminish your discernment on how you see people. It will certainly dishonor people, and it will dishonor the glory of God. Every so often when I look at when communion best fits, many times I will want it to fit or try to see if it fits within the context of a message. That frustrates a lot of people because they always want it on a more consistent basis or want to know ahead of time when it's going to be. But when I looked at this particular section of Scripture and realized this morning that we were going to end with communion, I thought this couldn't be more appropriate 
to fully understand what this section of Scripture is all about, I want to ask you a simple question. Who is this for? Who is this for? Everybody. The rich, the poor, the black, the white, the Asian, the Hispanic. We teach our kids, Jesus loves me, this I know. Or the Bible tells me so. Red and yellow, black and white, they're all precious in his sight. Kids seem to get it, but adults don't seem to do that well. This is for everyone. For the poor, for the rich, for those who are struggling and those who have it all together. For those of us who are white and those of us who aren't. You cannot hold on to these two elements. Understanding that the cross of Jesus Christ is the one leveling ground of all of humanity. And hold on to personal prejudice or favoritism at the same time. You've got to let go of one to hold on to the other. So this morning, while you're holding on to these two elements, if this is an issue for you, I'd ask you to let go of the other one. I realize if you've been holding on to it for a long time, it's not a simple decision. I get that. And it may be family backgrounds that have done it for three or four generations, and it's really hard now to look at people through a fresh set of eyes. But I'm going to ask you to ask God during our time of communion this morning to give me a fresh set of eyes. As a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to see them all as people that Jesus loved and died for. And so that when I share this meal again around the table of God and the banquet table of God, every single race and tongue and language and individual is going to be there. And we're all going to be brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to practice that now. I don't want to wait till then. So this morning as you hold these elements, ask him, Lord, do I do that? Man, give me a new set of eyes. Maybe a new heart. Gentlemen, we're going to come. We're going to wait on you this morning.